Welcome back to The Director's Cut, a podcast brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. In this episode, Lee Winnell takes us behind the scenes of his new horror mystery, The Invisible Man. A modern update to the classic sci-fi thriller, the film tells the story of Cecilia, who begins to suspect that the suicide of her abusive ex, a wealthy and brilliant scientist, was a hoax. As a series of eerie coincidences begin to threaten the lives of those she loves, Cecilia must convince others that she is being hunted by someone nobody can see. In addition to The Invisible Man, Mr. Winnell's credits include the feature films Upgrade and Insidious Chapter 3. After a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Winnell spoke with director David F. Sandberg about filming The Invisible Man. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Welcome, Lee. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Thank you. Uh, you've made an awesome movie uh it's I, I love this movie and i've seen so much love for it like online as well from like fellow filmmakers and critics and like everyone loves the movie it's awesome um you know already when the movie started i was like this is a masterful opening because i yes <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's so many other movies you know it feels like they would start so much earlier like you'd show the the relationship and like oh he's so bad and to her and and, and you'd see like him working in the lab with like i'm this close to finding a cure for visibility don't pull my funding and like <laughs> but you started with her getting away and with her like you see we get how bad he is with how, how afraid she is right we did get that note in test screenings, the whole like, um, you know, you read those sheets. It's hard to discern how many people in this room have actually been through that. But, you know, you get, you know, the sheets and yeah. the handwriting and it's, uh, there was a lot, like once it gets past 10, once it gets into double figures, you know, it's a thing. Like, yeah, we're going to have to dress the guy with the hook hand or whatever. Um there was more than 10 saying like, well, we didn't know enough ab about it. That's my impersonation of your average person. Um, <laughs> we didn't know enough about it. Like, can't we see a scene? They, they all seem to be wanting that five-minute scene at the start where the guy was like, you call these shirts clean? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, she's like, <sighs> and then you see her escape. It would just made the film so lame. Like, um, I think, like, there's nothing I could write that would be scary. Um, I think Elizabeth Moss is a good enough actress to communicate how scary the guy is. Um, but before this, uh, when I found out that this Q&A was starting at 9pm, I was like, well, we just opened this weekend. This is a good chance for me and a few of the crew members to go to El Compadre down the road. <laughs> so I'm not going to lie... I've had more than several margaritas. How do you feel about test screens? Because I, I had that same How issue. How do I feel about margaritas? Sorry. Yes. <laughs> By the way, the flaming margaritas, it, it's totally a, like, it's not even, like, they don't need to light it on fire, but you, you have to do it. Sorry, yeah. go again. Sorry, I'm listening um, this time. 
<laughs> do you find value in the test screenings? Because I've had the same problem with like on Lights Out, where people in test screenings were like, "Oh, we want to find out more about, you know, right. the, the background," and you're like, "Okay, we'll put that in." And then people <laughs> online are like, "It's not scary because we find out too much." So you like, find out. You can't win. It reminds me of that episode of The Simpsons where uh, Homer discovered that his uncle or something ran a car company, and he's. And the guy was voiced by Danny DeVito. And he's like, you're the average person I'm designing cars for. You should design my next car. And then it was just shit awful. Like you realize when you let, like, I don't know that people know what they want. I think if you ask people a direct question, they'll answer it. If you say to people, think of something you didn't like about this film. They'll yeah. be like, hmm. They I guess the guy's it. shirt was offensive. Like they'll, they'll think of something. So you have to be good at discerning which are the notes that are worthy of paying attention to? Like everybody does, two, 249 out of 300 people didn't understand the ending. We have a problem as opposed to like, you know, 30 people didn't like, you know, her clothes or whatever. You need to sort of, you need to, as yeah. you say, you need to become good at discerning the actual notes from the notes that you can be free to ignore yeah. Type of thing. I love the way you do action. I mean, with Upgrade and now this, you do a lot of really cool stuff with the camera, with like the camera going down with people and spinning around and coming back. Is that a lot of like certain rigs or is it a <laughs> lot of post effects or like how do well, you, what's the magic trick? On Upgrade, it was very low budget. We, um, we didn't have any money. So we, we did the sort of bare bones version of it. It was like, I, it was a weird upgrade was an interesting film because we shot it in Australia and the film was written as the first draft of upgrade was, was very expensive. It was, I just wrote the version that I would want to see James Cameron do. And then uh, Jason Blum. And then I decided I wanted to direct it. And Jason Blum was like, well, it's going to need to cost $5 million us. And so I had to sort of raise a cut this, script down to a five million dollar movie so by the time I got to Australia I was just testing the limits of what we could do and but I kind of st I mean I I guess I didn't know better and I still would say things to the stunt team like I want this to look like no fight scene that anyone's ever seen before yeah. I would actually say that those actual words and uh they must love that yeah and they I mean, our stunt coordinator, Chris Sanders, was, was this crazy guy. He worked on the original Mad Max movie when there weren't stunt people in Australia. That was just George Miller telling the nearest kid to get on a motorbike and ride it into a wall as fast as he could. <laughs> and when you ask Chris about it, he's like, he's like, he has, like, he's missing a leg from a stunt gone wrong. And he, he's like, oh, yeah, I was fucking mad, mate. It was, <laughs> it was great. Like it's that there's certain you can really take advantage of that Aussie like let's just um, learn to swim by diving off Niagara Falls attitude. So I was like, hey guys, I want this to look like no fight scene I've ever seen. And instead of being like, well, you know, you're going to need several months, and we're going to need some top choreographers to come in and train us, and it's going to cost this much. Instead of saying that, Chris would be like, oh yeah, fucking hey, let's do it. <laughs> like he was amazing and they were all just up for it and um we did the low budget version where we just strapped an iphone to logan the actor and the camera locks to the phone 
So wherever Logan goes, the camera goes. With this one, it was a little more, you know, it was a little more Rodeo Drive. <laughs> it was like we had a motion control camera. So same sort of effect of the camera going down to the floor with the actors, but we were using Like one motion. of those robotic arms? Yeah, like it was a, a robotic yeah. arm that would just go with the actors. And um, so it was the same spirit, but a, a little bit fancier equipment. Yeah. There's two sort of action scenes in this that, seemingly don't have any cuts it's like the the kitchen fight that's like mm -hmm. over a minute long and the my favorite is like in the hospital when he's killing all the guards and it's like all the way from from that to her running down chasing him down the stairwell like shooting after him and then running out it's seemingly no cuts Why make many it, cuts a lot of hidden cuts like in the yeah. whip pants and little yeah in the, in the pants and like um every time she goes through a doorway we're in a different location um yeah it's just about hiding those cuts and just figuring out how we could do it i i, I have this tendency to you know make life difficult for myself as i'm sure you know many directors do i guess i mean i guess you realize that you're not the person that makes life difficult you're just like, I'm sure there was somebody on the set of Goodfellas being like, do we really need to follow them all the way through the kitchen? Couldn't we just cut? Like, it was up to one guy to be like, no, no, we cannot. And then you, you just keep pushing against logic. I mean, that's the interesting and the frustrating thing about making films is the artistry versus the financial. Like, there's yeah. always somebody telling you to do this shit thing. Like... You know, I, I need 200 horsemen on that hill. It's like, what if it was four horsemen and they were ponies? <laughs> and they weren't on the hill, they were down at our level. And it's completely up to you to be like, oh, okay. You know, if you say, oh, yeah, that, like, um, um, the best piece of advice I got about directing, before I directed my first film, the, the, it was the third Insidious movie. So, like, I was aware that no one in the world was looking at this movie as Long Day's Journey into the into Night, but I was because it was, like, my first first time directing. So, to me, it was Citizen Kane. And uh, I remember ask, asking a bunch of writer-directors that I know for advice and um, John August, the writer, who, very nice guy, said, um, don't make the mistake of thinking you're hosting a party. Yeah. Like, you don't have to make everyone happy. You, you don't have to abuse people. You don't have to deliberately oppress people and make them unhappy. But you also, it also doesn't matter that much if someone doesn't like you for a day because you... And it was so stuck with me because somebody's always saying, like, what if it wasn't a hundred horsemen? What if it was just four and it was... They're going to they're gonna bring it back to what's best for them and it's up to you to go... In those moments, it's up to you to go, no, it must be a hundred. Yeah. And you figure it out. And, uh, and, and you also have to know when to hold them and fold them. Like there are other moments when you're like, okay, fine. But if you know it must be 100 horsemen, you have to be willing to be unlikable for a few days because no one remembers that stuff at the premiere. Nobody at the yeah. premiere of this film was coming up to me being like, <laughs> you really put me through the ringer on that kitchen scene, Lee. Like, they were hugging me and being like, wasn't it great? And I'm thinking, like, you weren't telling me I was great on that day. You actively hated me. But, yeah, I was like, we need to do this kitchen fight in one shot. And many, many people from many departments were like, scene would be a lot easier if we did it in, with cuts. Yeah. And I was like, 
I was the only lunatic that was like, it has to be all one shot. And then, so anyway, long-winded answer, but it's, it's like there has to be somebody there committing to the thing. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I, I talked to uh, some people who worked on a movie recently with a director who does a lot of takes and, like, there's really long days, but they were talking about it like they love the guy because it's like he's making sure it's great. And, like, you know, any crew member would rather point to a movie and go, like, yeah, we've made that awesome movie rather than yeah that movie was shit but we went home at 5 p.m you know do you ever have those moments where you're like god should i just should i just do the lesser thing and give up now or? that's my yeah all the time it's a, a big problem <laughs> I, I that's sort of my personality where i'm kind of like oh okay well maybe not yeah okay same but I, like but I, being I'm Australian, if i see it. someone who's upset and in pain i'm like my go-to position is like let's make life easier for that person yeah and I have to fight against it and be like, nope, um, they'll be fine. Like, they'll get over it. Yeah. They'll get over it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So for, for, for these action sequences, like, do you, are you a big, big planner in general, like storyboard, shot lists, all that stuff? Only on certain scenes. Yeah. Uh, for, no, not, not a big storyboarder. I remember meeting up with these friends of mine, the, the Spearig brothers who are directors, Australian sort of genre directors, and they're like, you know those guys in every high school there's the people that get the a plus on every test and they have they have like books this thick just of reference they they make you feel like you're not really trying you're like oh god um and i'm not that person but when it comes to an action scene yeah like um on upgrade and with this we did um we would shoot the action scenes with a little video or with a phone Mm. and shoot it and cut it um, but other scenes where it was just drama, I know that many directors, including directors that everyone on the crew would tell me about <laughs> subtly, so-and-so knew every shot. Um, um, there'd be a minute of shame and then, but then I guess you justify it by like when you've got an actor as amazing as Lizzie, as, as Elizabeth Moss, you you don't want to be like, then we're going to cut to a close-up of you here. Like, mm. you just let her do her thing and she's incredible and then you just cover it. Like, so for me, I like, I guess the theory is like, if it's technical and it's action, yeah, do your homework, fine. But if it's emotional stuff, I can do without the homework. Personally, I can be like, let's just let's just see what happens with her. Yeah. And how do you work with your... your- your DP, or are you very much like, I know John Carpenter said like, I just need someone to light the scene. I know where the camera is and where everything goes and while other really, directors, yeah. <laughs> I admire that. Um, I, I, well, Stefan Ducio, who was the DOP of this film and Upgrade, he and I have a great relationship. Like um, we, when we're not, shooting something we get along great (laughs) like when we're in the research stage and we're just watching movies it's basically just an excuse for us the research sort of getting to know the movie stage of the thing is the most fun because you're just watching movies you love and you're geeking out over some shot in some movie and usually I'm definitely a, a very passive turn my brain off viewer of movies like I don't analyze a movie as I watch it at all like it just washes over me. I don't know what happened. It's a coma. It's like I'm in it and it's happening only when I'm making a film and deliberately 
looking for shots. That's the only time in my life that I ever look at a film from an analytical point of view. Like, um, and I'll and I'll see new things. I'll be like, wow, I see what they're doing here in Seven. I've I've watched this film 124 times and never once considered where they were cutting ever. I've never, and I know a lot of people do this as they're watching a movie. They'll be like, nice cut. Nice. Mm. I don't do that at all. My brain is off. It's gone. It's over there having dinner. It, so only when I'm preparing to make a film do I watch Seven from a minute. And only then am I like, oh, wow, look, yeah, he's gone. And then he's cut over here. And so when we do that together, we're like geeking out about it. Then when you get on set and like the sun is setting and the time is running out, Things get a little, you know. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know. You know. We get. We get a. It get, things get a little hostile, but it's both in service of the movie. He's so passionate, and I'm so passionate that it's like, it's all hugs at the end. You know, it's like we're trying to get this thing, but um, but we we do a lot of talking. We don't necessarily map everything out, but we do so much talking that by the time we step on set, it's like this unspoken thing that we have both have. Mm. What were some of those movies you, you watched before? For this movie, I mm. mean, um, when I was writing, I was, I was watching like, um, like Misery. Um, mm. Misery is a great one that's just so functional. Like every scene kind of tightens the screws on the suspense. Um, it was it was a real range. I mean, there's f- older films like Cat People, mm. which is it's it's weird for an older film like that to still have. Um, I feel like a lot of people pretend that these older movies still resonate for them, but really it's just a museum piece. Like, wasn't that great that they invented that crane shot? But right. it doesn't smash you in the chest because you've since seen it. A well, it's just times. it's just they just had different rhythms back then. Like you know. Someone just had to talk and people in the audience were like, they're talking. <laughs> you know, like now to keep, to keep a modern teenager awake, you know, 10 robots have to be punching a moon to death. You know, <laughs> like, like it's, it's just a different film language. But every now and again, like one out of a thousand of those movies, there's one that still holds up and like Cat People still has some shots where you're like, oh, this is so tense. It's like Citizen Kane where you're like, I could learn, you know, or Hitchcock where you're like, this still holds up. Um, and uh, so I was watching those. And a lot of those sort of late 80s, early 90s adult thrillers that they used to make um, before CGI came along, like, you know, Fatal Attraction and Single White Female and these movies that um, they always had movie stars in them and they were always about like two or three people. And... I love those movies, you know. That, so those were the sort of movies I was watching. Okay. And speaking of CGI, did you have like a real suit at all? Is that all? We did CGI have a real guy? suit. It looked terrible. Like, <laughs> so it all replaced. I mean, I'm hoping. I, I haven't really had like a meeting yet with other directors who and said like, but like, I'm hoping that it always looks terrible on set. Like, I was like, wow, that is not good. And and the studio that made it was incredible. They odd studios. They do, they're like the best practical effects people in Australia. You know, they did Fury Road and so much stuff, The Matrix. But when you see this rubber suit, you're like, wow, is that gonna is that gonna be 
it, to see it with the naked eye, you you doubt it a lot. But um, um, I just had to have that thing where I was like, this will be good eventually. Like this will we'll, – we'll add our thing to it and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll make it good. <laughs> so it's not much of the rubber suit in the movie. It's sort of like – It's like the rubber suit with our thing added right. to it. <laughs> so and was there always a guy there? Like how did you shoot those shots where it's like the fights and, you know, someone's arm gets stopped? Like – It was a mixture of both, I mean, of everything. Like there was no one way to do those scenes. We we had everything from a guy in a full green bodysuit like wrestling with Elizabeth all the way to like a props guy hidden in a cabinet. He's in the movie. You just can't see him because he's in a cabinet pulling a door closed with a piece of string. So it was weird. It was like within one shot you had uh, – up to date CGI and and the other other side of the frame you had practical effects that they would have used on the original invisible man in 1933 yeah. just a string and a door and all of that was existing within the same frame and it works great together like yeah like you just at the end of the day you know all that matters is the end result as long as it as long as the audience watching it can't discern the difference between the cutting edge stuff and the practical stuff, then you're good. Yeah. How, how did you work with uh, Elizabeth Moss? Like, did you have any time to like rehearse before shooting or was it just sort of, did she came yeah. on board, come on board? Well, no, on? we did. We did. We, we didn't rehearse so much. She doesn't love rehearsal. She, mm. she doesn't want to rehearse. She wants to, she doesn't even want to rehearse on the set right there. Like she's, She's one of those actors that makes fun of that. You know when you have to block? Yeah. And so you set up the cameras. I like to talk with the actors and then bring the crew in. And she was always like, then I go over here and have a drink. <laughs> and she she would be making fun of the whole thing up until you call action. And then she'd be like right there. I think that that's her thing. That's her whole thing of like I don't want to live it until you call action. So it's but, fresh kind of Yeah, thing or- but what she did want to do – we we did sit together for hours and hours and hours in pre-production but we didn't rehearse we just talked we just talked through the script and she wouldn't act anything out but she would talk through every line of dialogue and every beat and for me you know writing a movie that snuck up on me as a movie about a woman experiencing these really sensitive issues she was the stamp of approval like she she was the final puzzle piece I needed to make it feel authentic for me because she would bring this female perspective and very sort of quietly and gently be like, I think I would more do this here or I'm not sure about this. This is maybe maybe I should be quiet before I'm angry. Or All these little adjustments she made, I realised that it was her giving me her sort of female perspective on how how she would feel in this situation and I just took it on board. So that was our rehearsal was just talking, you know, mm. just talking through every scene. How did the movie come about? Is like something you've been wanting to do for a long time or was it kind no. of like, no, it was like universal or looking for takes and I could do this? Yeah, or... No, it was, um, I mean, obviously I was aware of The Invisible Man as a character and I'm, I'm a big fan of these, um, you know, old Hollywood monsters, you know, just as a horror fan you realise you you're a fan of where it began mm. you know and so 
up until this movie suddenly landed in my lap, I was like listening to podcasts about old Hollywood movies, but never thinking, yeah, I'd love to make a Dracula movie. And then I had finished Upgrade and I went in for a meeting at Universal and they suggested The Invisible Man to me. They just said the title. They were like, what do you think about The Invisible Man? Which was weird. It would be like if you were talking to someone and they, out of the blue, they were just like, what do you think about Channing Tatum? <laughs> like, apropos of nothing, you'd be like, he's great, I guess. Um, um, and so I was like, are you sure? Yeah, he's, he's, he's fine, yeah. And uh, obviously it was a total ambush. They had pre-planned this whole thing. I was the only deer sitting in the scope of a hunter's rifle sitting there and I was like, uh, yeah. And they were like, well, what would you do with this character? And then like six people are like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and I was like uh, off the top of my head because there was no pressure. I'd never given one second's thought a day in my life to making an Invisible Man movie. Therefore, there was zero pressure. So I was like, I mean, if I was making that movie, I would tell the mo- I would tell the whole story from the point of view of his victim. And they were like, interesting. <laughs> and then I walked out of there and was like, bzz, bzz, who's this? Oh, my agent. What's he want? They love your take on the Invisible Man. Oh. <laughs> I was like, what take? They were like, <laughs> what, what I don't they know, but they are, they are blowing up my phone right now, buddy. You need to get on board and sign this contract. And I was like, I was like, okay. And the next thing I knew, I was making this film. But wh- what I instantly saw was an opportunity to really modernize it. I guess the Invisible Man, as opposed to a lot of these other classic monsters, um, um, you know, they have all this iconography. Dracula has all these rules, like he can't come out during the day or whatever. And and the Wolf Man, you know, when the full moon, the Invisible Man, there's no rule. It's just a guy. <laughs> It's just a guy who's invisible. You're like you can't see him. <laughs> it could be anybody. <laughs> could be a cousin. And uh, I saw an opportunity to be like, not in a sort of like, aha, it's a stroke of genius way, but just in a really, to me, an obvious way to be like, well, what if, what if you were a woman and you broke up with somebody who was obsessive and was stalking you, and they had the power of invisibility. Like what, and that, and that was the gateway to me, you know, writing the whole film. Hmm. That's awesome. Um, Benjamin Walfish, my favorite composer, did the score for this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's a how, very good composer. Yeah. Um, how how do you work with composers? Did, did you have Did you get to have any of the score while you were cutting it, or was it all temp music, or like what's the process? It was just temp. Yeah. Although we, when we showed him the movie, we just showed him the. Sc- the film without any score mm. rather than showing him the temp score. I just, we just played it without any score and which he actually really appreciated. He told me later. Yeah. Cause you, I guess you, you get really influenced, but what, what, by what's in there. I mean, even I know I as a director can go, you know, you fall in love with I know, a piece of temp. You do, you and, do. Then you, yeah. and then that classic thing happens with composers where it's like the unspoken thing is like, can you give us the last track in Inception without getting us sued? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just give us that. And, uh, and then they have to figure out a way to do the Inception score, you know, without, with, you know, you know, without getting sued. And so I was like, I don't want to do that to him. I was actually really curious what he would come up with if I didn't have any temp score for him to listen to. So we just sat and watched the film silently 
and he was like taking down all these notes and it was a great experience. So how did you feel? So how did it feel when you then got to hear stuff where you hadn't? Well, we talk, I did tell him what I, the feeling I wanted. Yeah. Like it wasn't like I just said, have at it. But I, we watched the film without any music and then I said, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I would like it to be. And, and the, it was interesting because there was two sides to the score. There was the more sort of electronic, screechy Adrian side and then there was the emotional Cecilia side. It was like two different scores. So the electronic stuff, I would he would send me stuff, but the orchestral stuff, I actually went to London. I just happened to be in London doing one pickup shot, one shot, one line for this movie, mm. not like a scene. Why one in London? Line, uh, because that's where Oliver was the oh. guy. He was there, and we had to go to London to do this one shot, and it just so happened that was the same weekend that. Ben was recording the score. And so we went to this amazing studio in London, Air Studios, and um, and he had this – well, I've never done this before. Like I've been involved with a lot of movies, but they've been fairly low-budget movies. Like you always get like the quartet. It's like, believe me, f- six people can make a hell of a racket. And, you, and you're Just like, yeah, it sounds up. fine. And, and and it does sound good, but this was this was my first experience with like sixty people in a room, and they were all like the best people in London. It was one of those things where you can't believe your luck. Like Ben was like the you know the cellist is the lead cellist for the BBC Symphony Orchestra, and he was just pointing out all these people and geeking out about it. And um, the building is an old church. It's got these huge high ceilings with this massive old pipe organ where they did the um, Dunkirk score. And so I'm I'm sitting in this room. Well, I was sitting behind the glass where the mixers are and Ben was like, come in the room, come in the room. And then I sit in this room and the, everyone is so polite. It's like, have ever put 60 Brits in a room? <laughs> It's literally like, oh, how are you? Yes. <laughs> you know, they're all knitting and like everybody's got tea. Would you like some tea? It's like, is everybody fine? Is everybody comfortable? All right. If, if everybody's comfortable, then let's begin. Excellent. And I'm sitting in the corner and then Ben's like, you know. And then 60 of the best players in the world, like, try not to cry. We're just like, I was just like, like, oh my God. Because when it's happening in front of you, even behind the glass, it wasn't the same. Like sitting near them and the oxygen of 60 of the world's best players just hitting you in the face and it's your score for your movie and there's a little sort of shitty screen up in the corner with a time code playing the scenes. It was incredible. It was amazing. And, uh, yeah, it, yeah, loved it. <laughs> Forget what the question was, but <laughs> it, it was yeah. You asked it, <laughs> it was but, something about um, music. <laughs> I think our time is up, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do, do you know what uh, what's next for you? Can you talk? No, about I mean I'm I'm being honest. Usually I always have some other thing that I've started that I'm like, but this is the first time I'm like, there's nothing. So we'll see what happens. Awesome. <laughs> well, I look forward to it. And thank you. Thanks for doing this. Everyone. Seriously, appreciate <laughs> Absolutely. it. Absolutely. My brother. first time moderating. Thank you for coming out. 
Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. Don't forget, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.